Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast, Episode 8. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. I'm a veterinarian and a professor at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. This week, I'm pleased to have Dr. Elizabeth Homorowski from Veterinary Agri-Health Services in Airdrie, Alberta. Our topic this week is all about the prevention of calf scholars. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Homoroski. Thanks for being here and maybe... To start us off, you could tell the audience a bit about your background. Yeah, so thanks for having me, Dr. Campbell. Um, my name's Elizabeth Homorowski. I'm actually originally from the States. I grew up on a commercial cow-calf operation. So like most of your listeners, um, the first 18 years of my life was spent as a professional gate opener for my dad. <laughs> and that kind of, um, that background really instilled in me a passion for the beef industry. And so my dream from very young was to be a cow vet and and be a rancher. Well, we're glad we recruited you here to Canada. Um, You're one of the young stars of the veterinary community, I always think. So tell us a little bit about veterinary agri-health services where you work and you have a great team of people there. What It's a progressive practice. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so we have a fantastic crew here. I am very thankful to have found my way to Canada. I did a master's and a residency through the University of Calgary. And during that time, I was uh, mentored by Dr. Mike Delinsky and Dr. Craig Doran here at Veterinary Agri-Health Services. And so when I graduated, it, it seemed like a pretty um, easy fit for me and have been at this practice ever since and have since become a partner uh, along with Dr. Brian War as well. So we service uh, clients in all four Western provinces, specializing in cow-calf and feedlot production medicine and consulting. And then we also have a fairly strong research and teaching component to our practice. So even though we're 100% beef cattle, there's a lot of diversity to our day. Yeah, that's great. You guys get a lot of the students from Calgary and you run a great summer program for vet students from all of, all across Canada and other colleges as well. The, that's That's a really great experience that a lot of our students take advantage of. So thanks for all the f- things you folks yeah. do. Um, so our topic today is is prevention of calf scours. And just let's start off by talking about how important calf diarrhea is as a disease in cow-calf herds. Yeah, so it's something, um, it's a real struggle if you're experiencing an outbreak, um, not only on, on the calves, but on, on our clients, on the producers as well. And so luckily, as a lot of calving herds have push back calving and are more closely aligned with mother nature, if you will, scours outbreaks have continued to decline. Um, But it's still a, it's still an issue that we deal with. And there's lots of things that we can do from a management perspective to help reduce our incidence of clinical cases and hopefully um, always prevent an outbreak situation. Yeah, I always think uh, those calf foot diseases, both pneumonia and diarrhea, the amount of work it takes to deal with them when they happen is immense. It's always, it's it's a huge amount of work to catch calves and treat them and, and deal with it when you're in the midst of it. So prevention's obviously the way we want to go. What are the main pathogens that we need to worry about uh, for calf scours? Yeah, so there's a number of different 
viruses, bacteria, and protozoa that can result in uh, diarrhea or scours cases. If you have a calf affected with scours within just a couple of days of birth, that's most likely going to be E. coli, which is a bacteria, and it's typically related to hygiene. So in cases of E. coli scours, it's most likely uh, earlier calving herd, everybody's coming through the barn, um, or Mother Nature has uh, been a little tough on us and we have some contaminated dirty bags, and, and so that's how the calves are being exposed to this bacteria. But the most common um, cases that we get occur in calves about 10 days to two, three, four weeks of age. And in that time frame, we're mostly dealing with coronavirus, rotavirus, and cryptosporidium, which is a protozoa. So the tough thing about these is none of those respond to antibiotics, right? And so um, they're viruses and protozoa. And so correction uh, or a treatment of the diarrhea is mostly aimed at correction of dehydration and acidosis, which is when the pH of those calves drops too low. So the other things that, that are important to keep in mind when you're dealing with these different pathogens is that if your calf has one pathogen, he likely has others as well. A lot of these are ubiquitous in the environment, which means they're out there. We can't um, completely eliminate them on our, on our calving pastures. And healthy, healthy cows in our herds are shedding these pathogens, particularly those first calf heifers that may be going through a little bit more stress. Um, and so a lot of times I try to take the focus off the bug, off the pathogen for those reasons, but also because I want to focus on why did this calf succumb to this disease, right? It's not like crypto comes out of the weeds and just attacks our calves. The, it's, that's not the diagnosis to me. The diagnosis is, did we have inadequate management? Did we fail to prevent this? Um, did we have a calf that potentially didn't nurse in time when we're dealing with failure or passive transfer? Um, do we have poor hygiene going on? That's what I really want to focus on because that's where we can make um, the greatest Im improvement and reduce our clinical cases. So would diagnostics ever be important when we're dealing with a calf scours case? Yeah, so certainly it can help um, us determine a better treatment strategy, uh, particularly if we have calves that are not responding. Um, it's also really valuable to know if you're dealing with zoonotic pathogens like E. coli or cryptosporidium where people are susceptible uh, to those as well. And so especially if you have immunocompromised individuals around the ranch or children around the ranch, uh, sometimes it's really valuable to know exactly what you're dealing with so that you can prevent scours outbreaks in the human population as well. So cows are walking around with all of these bugs in their intestinal tract and we're basically trying to prevent calf exposure to too high a dose of, of the feces that their mamas have and the other cows around them and maybe the other calves as well. So what are, what are some of the strategies that producers can employ to minimize the calf's exposure? Yeah, so I think any sort of prevention strategy or herd health strategy always starts with those building blocks. We need to have excellent nutrition and good you know, mineral and vitamin program we need to make sure that those cows are adequately vaccinated and that we've got a solid herd health protocol in place. 
So that's the starting point. After that, there's a lot of different things we can do during the time of calving to minimize exposure and reduce contamination on our calving pastures. And that largely deals with the implementation of strategic calving pasture systems. So you've probably heard a few mentioned in the past, sand hills, foothills. There's lots of different names for these different strategies, but they are extremely effective at preventing outbreaks. So tell us about the Sandhill system. That's uh, that's one I think that you prefer, and and uh, I've heard you talk about it before. How how do producers go about implementing that? Yeah, so Sandhills is one of my uh, favorite strategies. Um, if you don't have sand and you don't have hills, don't worry. <laughs> you don't need either. It just was developed by some really smart folks in the great state of Nebraska in an area called the Sand Hills, and so they affectionately named it after that area. Um, but this is my go-to um, strategy, and we have used it in dozens of herds to prevent scours outbreaks. So the reason it's so effective is that it allows us to segregate calves by age to minimize both the direct and indirect transmission of pathogens from our older, clinically healthy appearing calves to our younger, more susceptible population. So in general, once you get that calf to three or four weeks of age, especially if you get them to spring processing and turnout time, we're kind of in the clear at that point. So the most critical time point is to protect that calf for at least the first two to three weeks of life. Uh, the second reason the sand health system is so effective is that it allows us to transition pregnant cows to new clean calving pastures every uh, couple of weeks so that we're reducing camp contamination on our pastures and reducing our calves' exposure to those pathogens as well. So the best way to think about it is, you know, when you think about calving season and when your scour cases occur, I never give a phone call in the first two weeks of calving season, right? It's almost consistently always week five or six that scour starts happening. And that's because that's how long it takes all this contamination to build up and for calves to start amplifying and shedding these pathogens. So what we're going to try to do is basically reboot calving season every two weeks and just hit the restart button and create those ideal conditions all over again for the next set of cows about to calf. So tell us exactly how the Sandhill strategy works in practice when you actually have to employ it. Yeah, so this is something we actually start working on right now with our clients. So when we go out to ultrasound and preg check, we try to sort off those girls that are going to calve towards the end of calving season. They don't need to be in our calving pastures on day one, right? They can they can hang out somewhere else um, so that we're reducing uh, crowding in our primary calving pasture. So typically we're gonna start with all the girls um, in, in one big pasture and we're gonna allow them to calve for a week to 10 days. Absolute maximum is two weeks. And so at the end of that two week period, we're actually gonna take everybody that has not yet calved and we're going to move them to a whole new pasture. So the pasture that ranchers um, typically use to, to pair out into, we're actually going to use that to reboot calving season. 
And so if you were born on a pasture, you grow up on that pasture with your mom and you're not moved, you're not stressed, you're not exposed to older animals. So the girls that are pregnant and get moved to the second pasture, we're going to hit the timer again. We're going to allow them to calve out for an absolute maximum of two weeks. And then at the end of that time period, we're going to yet take everybody again that has not calved and move them to a third pasture. So you're kind of getting the idea. Everybody gets born on clean pastures. You're never exposed to an animal that's two weeks older than you. And so if you have a 60-day breeding season, in general, it takes about five pastures to get this done. And so this is very manageable um, because you can plan for these, these pregnant cow moves, right? You're only doing them once every two weeks. Whereas before, we used to spend hours each morning potentially pairing out calves depending on what type of cattle flow system you had. So not only is it really effective at preventing scours, but it saves you a ton of time as well. Yes, it's a lot easier to move those pregnant cows than it is to move the pairs. Um, but there is the other sort of system. So tell us about tell us about your alternative system that you sometimes use as well. Yeah, so I wanted to be um, as cool as the people in Nebraska. So I've named this one the Foothills because I originally started using it for a, a ranch I was working with in the Foothills here in Alberta. And so that ranch had about a thousand mama cows and uh, calved in February. And so one of their uh, uh, must-haves was that everybody calved near the barn. They wanted everybody to be able to come into a maternity pen if there was inclement weather. And so Sandhills calving didn't work for that system, right? Because the longer you get in the calving, the farther away everybody is potentially from your facilities. And so we came up with an alternative, and I've termed it the Foothills system. And so it still achieves our primary objective, which is to segregate those calves of different ages. Again, we're always trying to protect those younger, more susceptible calves from the older calves that are potentially shedding these pathogens, but are no longer susceptible. So what we do in this system is um, as soon as you can, you move fresh pairs to a new clean pasture. And what I mean by as soon as you can is after that calf is nursed, but before 24 hours of age. So for the first 24 hours of life, that calf is pretty much only passing meconium, which is the sterile fecal matter. And so his ability to amplify and shed pathogens is really low. And so what I want to do is I want to, I want to get him off the clean calving pastures before he has the ability to amplify or um, expose any other calves. And so I will pair out into that pasture for one to absolute maximum of two weeks. And then at the end of that time period, all we do, we close the gate to that pasture, we open the gate to a new clean pasture, and we pair out into that second pasture. And then so on and, and so on until you get through calving season. So we're still separating those calves by age. The downfall is not all the mama cows get to calve on clean pasture. And so typically what we do towards the end of calving season, uh, all the heifers are calved out. We have very minimal issues. At that point, we just take everybody off the main calving grounds and kind of use the sandhills philosophy where we just send them to the last pasture and just let them calve out. Uh, there because typically by that time we've got more favorable weather as well so 
whenever we're working with ranches at our practice, we really want to understand both their opportunities and challenges. You know, when are, when are you calving? Where are your water sources? Do the cows go to the feed or does the feed go to the cows? All of these things are on the table for discussion so that we can ultimately come up with a protocol um, that we're really happy with from a disease mitigation standpoint and the producer is really happy with from uh, a time and labor input standpoint. That's great. I, I think your foothill system is kind of a modification of our old Lacombe system, we used to call it, or something like that. I don't know. That's what we called it in Canada years ago. That probably predates uh, when you graduated, but um, that <laughs> we did see a and we did have a system somewhat like that. I think the variation that you have uh, getting the calves turned out to those nursery pastures sooner is is a key component of that. That's that's really interesting. So how do you work with your clients to implement these strategies? I expect you have to modify things every place you go because everybody has different systems and management and pastures available or or corrals or whatever that may be. So how do you go about implementing these? Yeah, so every every single protocol that we put together is different because everybody has different challenges, bottlenecks. The most consistent one is availability of water sources. So potentially we have um, dugouts that are frozen over or we really don't want the cows going into the, down into that creek area to water. Um, and so making sure that we move cows around in a way that really aligns with what mother nature allows is really important. And so typically we do a walk through the ranch. Um, these are lots of these clients. We have a really good understanding of, of their operation goals. And then we take a aerial shot and we'll project it up on our whiteboard here in the office, or we can do this virtually. We do this quite a bit. Um, just over the computer with iPads and whatnot for our, our more remote clients that we can't physically get to. And so then we've got a really nice aerial shot of the operation. We can draw fence lines where waters are, where the good sheltered areas are, start to map out our calving uh, projections. So how many calves do we expect to drop each week of calving season? We can look at the pasture sizes and say, you know what? We're expecting our peak calving to occur during this time. We need to make sure we're utilizing our largest pasture during that time as well. So there's lots of different strategies that go into this. And it's usually a work in progress. And it might change from year to year. We might put in some fence lines. We might put in some more waters. Um, we're tweaking it every year to make it better for some of these ranching operations. So some of these herds that calve earlier in the year are probably at a greater risk for calfhood diseases, especially scours, because they're usually a little more intensive systems. Like you mentioned, uh, the one with uh, calving in the barn or being close to the barn. So can we modify the Sandhill system to work for those herds that calve more intensively uh, earlier in the year? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you name it, we've, we've tried it. Um, and even if you're calving you know, even if you're April calvers, you Mother Nature can still throw you a curveball. So we still have to have backup plans in place. 
One of the best things we've actually come up with is um, portable maternity barns or portable maternity pens. So if you're using the Sandhill system, sometimes the concern is we're getting too far away from our facilities. Well, why not just trail the facilities behind the cows, right? So I have some ranchers that we built maternity pens on skids. And when the cows that have yet to calve are moved, the facility goes with them. And that allows us uh, the versatility to, to get those calves in and, and shelter if they need it. So you mentioned water as a major challenge. Are there any other big challenges for clients if they're trying to implement one of these new management systems for their calving setup? Predation's been a big one as well. Uh, there's definitely certain areas where it would not be ideal to have you know, the young wobbly calves out there. We kind of want calves with a little stronger wheels before we send them to certain areas. So, um, it, but it's unique to every operation. Everybody has, you know, a lot of it is, is labor challenges. Um, the best thing about these is that a lot of times when they're trying to decide whether or not to implement this, they're making the decision based on how much time they had during calving seasons where they were spending a good chunk of their day treating scours. So when you take that out of the equation, when we actually prevent the scours outbreak, all of a sudden you have all this time to do some of these other things that are really ideal for your cow herd. So that's important to keep in mind. Um, you need to you need to adopt a system with the understanding that it's going to be a redistribution of your time. In the end, it's it's it costs far less to prevent and scours outbreak than it does to treat your way through it. But the work you would have put in treating your way through it. You're going to put at the front end and talking with your veterinarian and coming up with a protocol and putting in fences and developing waters and all the planning that goes in ahead of time. It's really just a redistribution of your time and labor. Obviously, colostrum is an important preventive measure as it is for all neonatal calf diseases. And uh, I've read your papers from your graduate work. you you devised a really practical method for determining if a calf was at higher risk of needing supplemental colostrum. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so you're right. It's Colostrum is pretty much liquid gold in our world. And so uh, my master's project at the University of Calgary was focused on how do we identify compromised or high-risk calves in a really easy, quick, practical way pretty much immediately after birth. Right? If that calf is not going to have um, the energy, the muscle tone that he needs to get up and nurse on his own, I don't want to find out in six hours. I want to know now. <laughs> and so long story short, I, I lived in a calving barn um, one season and measured all sorts of things. And in the end, there was one parameter, one test that you could perform on calves that gave you a really, really good prediction of whether or not that calf was going to be physically able to nurse, and that's suckle reflex. So this is a test that you can easily perform by just putting two fingers in the calf's mouth, rub the roof of that calf's mouth, and so he should have a pretty good jaw tone and a good rhythmic suckle reflex. If he doesn't, then that means he's probably um, suffering a little bit from acidosis, uh, that typically will correct itself within a few hours after birth. But 
it is less likely that he's going to get up and nurse, say, by four hours after birth. So if you have a calf that you're like, oh, I'm not sure about, he's just not popping up as quick as I'd like, and you check that suckle reflex and it's weak, that's a calf that's going to need some sort of intervention. And that's one of the best things that we can we can do. Identify that calf, ensure we help that calf consume colostrum, and so he can protect himself from scours down the road. And that was even more evident if if you had to pull the calf on top of that as well, right? If you put those two risk factors together, it became even higher likelihood that that you would have to give that calf supplemental colostrum. Exactly. And I think that was multifactorial in a way, because if you were the heifer that just had a calf that needed to be um, either manually or mechanically delivered, you're probably less likely to bond with your calf as well. Um, And so a calf that successfully nursed, we need both a, a really good mother and a really vigorous calf. And so when you have a vigorous calf, mother gets more excited and it's kind of this catch um, 22, right? Um, uh, and so if we have a mom that wants to lay down and, and a calf that really isn't getting stimulated, well, then potentially that, that hurts both parties. And we don't have a successful nursing event in that critical four-hour time period. Right. My colleague, Dr. Stuckey, always talked about how heifers rely on those cues of a vigorous calf to sort of stimulate them to turn around and pay attention to that new baby, uh, whereas older cows maybe don't need that so much. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good point, Elizabeth. Thanks. Last thing maybe we'll talk about is vaccines are obviously an important component of our scours prevention program. And I think there's a little bit of a rumor going around. We might have a bit of a shortage this year in scours vaccines. Uh, not sure if that's completely true or not, but but uh, looks like there might be some production shortfalls. But they're not a silver bullet either. Uh, what are some important points that you folks consider when you're implementing your vaccine protocols for scours? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. They're not a silver bullet. Um, that being said, making sure that you're working with your veterinarian to have a really robust, comprehensive herd health program with both your five-way and your clostridial vaccines, I think is really important. When it comes to scour vaccines, I view them as a supplement to good management, and we need to use them for what they were intended for. So the research shows that they are very effective at helping that calf overcome scours more quickly and helping that calf reduce the number of pathogens it's shedding. They don't have the ability to prevent an outbreak per se, So we want to make sure we're not using those vaccines as a crutch and we're putting our emphasis on management strategies and and other preventive measures. Yes, those vaccines can always be overwhelmed in in, uh, intensive environments where where we don't have that clean environment. Um, Timing's important as well because they're not all the same. Can you comment on that a little bit? Uh, Yeah, for sure. So there's, um, it's really important to read the label and make sure that, you know, you're giving, giving the first dose when it needs to be the booster, when it needs to be the duration of activity isn't as long as, as some of the other vaccines we have in the market. So when they say like, this is when you need to give it, they're telling you that so that you're getting a peak antibody response right before those cows make colostrum. 
so that we're putting all those antibodies in the colostrum for that calf to consume. And so if the timing is too early and that peak's coming down or the timing's too late and she's already made colostrum, then they're not as effective as they could be. And so it's really important to understand those products and talk with your veterinarian so that your, your timing is appropriate. And obviously that calf's still got a suckle colostrum, like you talked about earlier, that's uh, the vaccine is not going to do much good if the calf doesn't get that colostrum. Exactly. Well, Elizabeth, uh, any final thoughts or take-home messages you want to give to producers out there that are maybe considering some new management system for their calving uh, in order to prevent calf scours? Yeah, so I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I think the most important thing is just to sit down with your veterinarian and have a plan. And if if you put together either Sandhills, Lacombe, you name whatever system you put together, you actually already have a backup plan in place if you think about it. So when we consider the Sandhill system, if you were to get into a scours outbreak, what you could theoretically do is that day, just move all the pregnant cows to a new pasture, even if you're not to two weeks yet. You can just restart calving somewhere else and contain the scours outbreak to that one pasture, right? And with the foothill system or the Lacombe system that you're talking about, well, we just stop pairing out to that pasture that has scours and we start pairing out to a new pasture, right? So because you, you've thought about it ahead of time, you have a plan, you, you automatically have a backup plan if, say, it, we get a nasty April snowstorm and, and we do have a few cases of scours. Um, for the most part, we've been very, very effective at preventing outbreaks, but there's a lot of different reasons calves get scours, and so we're probably not going to be able to prevent every single case. And so having a protocol and a backup plan in place um, can be very valuable. That's great advice. Thank you, Elizabeth, for doing this uh, today. I know you're super busy with the fall run and preg checking, and you've got a whole bunch lined up later today. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. We'll be taking a short break for the holiday season, but there'll be more episodes coming in the new year. Thanks to everyone for listening, and thanks again to my guest, Dr. Elizabeth Homorowski from Veterinary AgriHealth Services. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council. Please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments or would like to suggest topics that you'd like to see covered in future episodes, please email us at bchnpodcast at gmail.com. Take care until next time.